Hey everyone, I am James Q. Quick. I'm a JavaScript developer, speaker, and teacher. And I'm Amy Dutton. I'm a senior UI UX designer and front-end developer. And we want to welcome you to Compressed FM, a podcast all about web design and development with a little bit of zest. Today we're talking about freelance part two. In episode six, we did freelance part one, but today is a continuation of that. So I'm very excited about some of the topics that we'll be talking about. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we have three fantastic sponsors in Vercel, one of the best hosting companies there is. Pathwire, the parent company of Mailgun and Mailjet. They'll take care of all your email needs. And Zeal. Actually, James, do you want to tell us more about Zeal? So from what I know, Zeal is an amazing company. You get to work on really cool stuff and you get to do really cool things. But Amy, you actually work for Zeal, so maybe this is better if you do this. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's vague. We do do all those things. But yes, I do work for Zeal. They're a software consultancy, and we build most of our applications in Rails and React. So I've worked with them for five and a half years now, either as a contract worker or as full-time. And I can honestly say it's the best company I've ever worked for. And good news for you, they are hiring, meaning you could work with me. So if you are a designer or a developer and looking for a new job, be sure to check out their website and the job listing. I'll include both in the show notes. Special thanks to Zeal for sponsoring. And I think you did that much better justice than I would have. So thank you, Amy, for <laughs> for that spot on Zeal. And thank you for Zeal and the other sponsors for sponsoring. Amy, what have you been up to this past week? In addition to my normal job, I did two freelance projects, just cranking out designs for them. So it's actually been a pretty busy week. But one of the fun things is one client in particular has a whole admin panel that we're developing. And so I actually bought Tailwind UI and used that as a starting point. So that was kind of fun just to get in somebody else's Figma file and see how they design their components and have set up their projects. And then this weekend, because the weekdays were so busy, I intentionally did nothing <laughs> or just non-tech, non-screen related things. Love it. What about you, James? Uh, yeah, I actually ended up buying a Tailwind uh, this past week myself based on your very positive feedback, going through a redesign on my personal site. And then something kind of wild has happened to me on YouTube. I have created YouTube videos for several, several years now. And I'd been kind of down. My YouTube videos were really low uh, the last five or six or so uh, on average, like much lower than they had been. And I was getting kind of down. And then Tuesday, I released a new video about a Postman replacement extension for VS Code. And by the time of recording this, so it's been six, uh, five days, I guess. And the video has over 200,000 views. So crazy. Which is really cool. And I wanted to kind of cl clarify, like, this is not a braggy thing because I don't feel like I necessarily deserved it. I feel like it's weird that I've created good content and then you just never know when YouTube is going to be like, this is the one that people are really going to love. So it's kind of cool. I've had a few of those types of videos and they've really driven a high percentage of subscribers and views to my channel. So if content creators out there, Amy, I know you do a lot of YouTube videos as well. Take advantage of those spikes. You can never really control it. But if you can get those spikes, they help that exponential growth on your channel. So I was really happy to see the success of that video. Seth Godin actually has a thing in his latest book called The Practice, which just talks about consistency. And one of his things is you don't get to choose what you're famous for, which I thought was <laughs> kind of interesting. So <laughs> you didn't get to choose that your VS Code <laughs> postman video right. would go viral, but that it really is all about consistency and just showing up every day. Yeah. Has it had an effect on the rest of your channels? I don't know how it's affected other specific videos, but all the stats across YouTube as a whole are way up, mostly from that video just getting so many views by itself. 
So yeah, I'm definitely going to ride this wave out and try to catch the next one soon. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So I guess we'll go ahead and get started. We're following up on uh, part one of freelancing. This is going to be part two, but I think we wanted to throw in a few extra tips in freelancing of how you get started. So you've got a first bullet point of creating a customer journey map. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, sure. So this is just it can be as simple as an outline or it can be as detailed as an illustrated flow chart, but it outlines every single thing that you're going to do for a client. It talks about the touch points that you have with that client, but it also talks about what you're going to do behind the scenes. And the big point here is that you just want to design the process. You want them to feel like you are truly leading the client, that you're not waiting on them to tell you what to do, but you're able to really pull them, especially with someone that doesn't have a lot of experience, you're able to pull them through this process and guide them to the end result that they're looking for. And that's part of what they're paying you for is that leadership. Yeah. And I've done one particular freelance project from a build a website for someone. And the thing I learned was they really didn't have anything to offer in terms of guidance. Like you're talking about pulling your clients through. I think that actually is really, really important. And I think it's something that would probably surprise people as they take on early projects of you think other people or clients would be more opinionated, have a better idea of what they want. Probably a lot of the times they actually don't. So you having been through this process a lot, you probably have pretty good documentation or maybe a checklist for yourself of like, I need to make sure I address these things. Here's what a template might look like for these requirements for this communication. And I was really curious, you mentioned the touch points with a client. So touch points in this case would be like, how often do you check in? What do you communicate in a check-in? What are some of the communication that you used before and what's been your touch point schedule? What does that look like for you before in the past? Yeah, so some of those very specific things that I've done is say a client will come to the website and they'll fill out an inquiry on my site. So that's touch point one. What does that process look like? I want to make sure that there's a strong thank you message to let them know that I've received that email. Maybe there's an automatic follow-up reply thanking them. And actually, as you're sending out thank yous. We do have a sponsor that handles that directly called Pathwire. And just wanted to take a brief minute and talk specifically about how they can help you in that. Pathwire is the parent company of Mailgun and Mailjet. So if you need help sending any type of email, whether it's marketing emails or this type of email that we're talking about here or a transactional email, I definitely encourage you to check them out. You can use their template builder or bring your own code or use MJML. They have a generous free plan that never expires with no credit card required. One of their power features is being able to create these emails within a team setting. MailJet provides a dedicated space for your team where you can invite team members and give them specific roles and permissions to control what they can access and manage on your account. So once you're logged in, you can actually work together in real time on the email design, which is perfect in the world of working remotely. So check out MailJet and we will include a link in the comments. Thank you, Pathwire and MailJet for sponsoring. So at this point, after I've sent them an email confirming that I've received their inquiry, I will usually review it and process that email based on what they're looking for. Because I do design and development, I'm not going to respond talking about how we're going to build out their website if they're coming to me for a branding project. So I will usually hand tailor this next part depending on exactly what they're asking for. But again, that hand tailoring is part of designing that experience for them. 
So from that, I'll usually send them a few questions or schedule out a discovery phone call. So one thing I'll actually point out in terms of designing this experience is for scheduling that phone call, I've actually used Calendly and they are not a sponsor, but it's been amazing to me the client responses that I've had on that particular touch point. A lot of times clients will respond and say, hey, I really like this experience. This was really neat to be able to pick out a spot directly on your schedule. And I've been surprised at just the difference that one small service has made. Yeah, Calendly has definitely been really useful for me. I think we've all been in, in those situations of you email someone, and it's like, all right, are you available? Or send me some times when you're available. And then they send them, you're like, okay, I'm not available those times. What about these times? Well, with Calendly, you have your own dedicated link that people can go to. They can see your calendar and they can book the time, which is kind of nice because I think that's one, probably one step of filtering out clients because I bet you some percentage of people, a small percent probably, but don't follow up on that. And then the burden's on them, right? Mm -hmm. So you put a little bit of the burden on them and you can almost kind of sit back and wait for those next steps to come in. That's right. That's a great point that this process, as much as it is about designing this experience, it's also about vetting a client to see whether you would both be a good fit. Because the more that you can do that on the front end, the better your project is going to be in the long run. So as we're going back and forth, this is a great opportunity to learn more about them and what type of project they have in mind before you even jump on a phone call. So a lot of times I'll send them a questionnaire and that's just a template. I'll send the same generic questionnaire for every branding project, for every code project, for every web design project, and just ask them a bunch of questions. And to your point, a lot of clients or potential clients don't even fill out that questionnaire. And so that's really helpful for vetting clients. If they're not going to take even the questionnaire seriously, I'm not sure how serious they would take the entire project or how responsive they would be during the project. But my power question that I will throw out there is a lot of times I will ask clients if they've worked with someone in the past. And I've been surprised by how many clients have come to me because they've had a bad experience in the past and are trying to ask me to come in and solve that or do the work that somebody else never did. If that is true, I'll ask them what didn't work with that person before. And that's a huge mental note to me to make sure I don't do the same <laughs> thing that caused problems with the previous person. You definitely don't want to double down on something that already didn't work well. <laughs> right. But when you talk a lot about business stuff and trying to find pain points, that's an obvious pain point that you can press into a little bit and figure out what in the previous working relationship didn't work. And I've discovered in some cases, one client, for example, said that they really wish the previous person had done copywriting. Well, I don't do copywriting. That's one mm -hmm. thing that I will gladly easily say that I don't do, but it was a mental note to me. Okay. If you were looking for me to do copywriting, I can tell you on the front end, I don't do that, but I will happily reach out to people and contacts that I know that do that. And so already I've solved a pain point for them so they don't have to write that copy. I think that's a really nice point. As a freelancer, you don't have to do it all yourself, right? Your strength is not copywriting. And maybe it's something that you just really dislike doing. I really struggle with copywriting. So having a network of people that can help fill in some of those gaps means that you can help them out by bringing them work and helping them earn money. But also you as an individual now can provide this bigger package that has these ins and outs that maybe someone else doesn't because you've got these connections for people that can help fill those voids. Mm -hmm. And if you're part of the Compressed.fm mailing list, you will get a link out to the template that I use with questions. And just for those of you that are curious, the questions aren't always necessarily tech-related questions specifically to their website. Like I'm not asking them what tech they want to use. I'm asking them more of problems that they need their website to solve. 
whether it's talking about for them booking their own clients or providing information or whatever, depending on what service that particular client offers. So what are some of the things as you go back and forth in some of your conversations, what are some of the details you're working out to get to actually starting to work on a project? I'm going to use a website redesign because that's where I do a majority of my work. But in those cases, I'm going through their current website. I'll do an audit to see what's working on their current site and what's not. And some of that is me looking at it with fresh eyes. Some of it's going to competitor sites and seeing, oh, your competitor offers this service. Why don't you? Or would you like to offer that? It's also asking if you could take a magic wand and you could solve the problem, how would you solve it? Just to see what ideas they have. After you ask them a lot of questions and get the answers that you need, I'll create an estimate. And a lot of times when I'm creating the estimate, I will send it through Harvest and I'll also send a contract through HelloSign. So again, this is just about designing the process. HelloSign allows them to go to a website and read through it. They can download the PDF and they can sign it right there. One of the things I really like about HelloSign is it will tell you if they've even looked at the contract before. It's just helpful to me to know where they are in their own process of reviewing the contract and an invoice. And then as you're sending estimates and invoices through Harvest, Harvest is typically known as a time tracking application, but I also use it for invoicing. The nice thing is it will direct deposit to your bank account. So I realized I've gotten paid a lot faster if I use an online service. You do usually have to pay a percentage in order to accept payment online. So Harvest actually routes through Stripe. So I'm paying like 2.9% through Stripe. And if it's a large invoice, I might specifically ask them to cut me a check just because it ends up being a lot of money. But in my mind, it's just a cost of doing business in order to get paid faster. Then once they've signed the contract, I'll usually set them up in a project management system. So over the years, I've probably used them all. Right now, I'm currently using Notion, but I've also used Basecamp and Asana and Teamwork. The important thing here is just to find one that works best for you and your client. I've used them before and the client logs in and they're totally overwhelmed. So you want to make sure that you also set them up for success so they know exactly what they're looking for and what that process is going to be like. And the way that I communicate that process with them is by sending out a welcome document. And again, I'll include this if you're on our mailing list. You can just go to compress.fm and register. But this welcome document explains how I work, what they can expect from me, the expectations I have for them. And usually when I send out the welcome document or kick starting a project, I'll also write them a handwritten card and send them ugly mug coffee. And I think James is a little special for you because Ugly Mug Coffee is based out of Memphis. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I thought you mentioned that, I think, a couple of weeks ago in our conversations. And I thought that was so special. You think about growing a business as a freelancer, it becomes the small things become so important, right? Because you could work with a client, you could get something done, you could meet expectations. But when you do these extra things, when they have something that comes up again in the future, like you want people to think of you, you want people to come back to you. And I think that's a really nice touch, like shout out to the fact that it's from Memphis. Mm -hmm. That's really neat. But just those little things, I think, in your relationships with your clients make a big difference going forward. That's right. So part of the reason I use Ugly Mug is one, coffee is my love language. But two, they have two blends in particular that I'll send out. One's called Think Big and one's called Good Vibes. And so I'll usually say something really cheesy when I send them that handwritten card that says, you know, as we're starting this project, I want to send you good vibes, like literally good vibes. And it's been amazing to me how much that $15 bag of coffee makes in setting the tone for our relationship. Absolutely. 
Definitely worth it. I think as freelancers, and again, you've got much more of the kind of traditional freelance background. I've got more of like the content creation and sponsored videos and that sort of stuff. But when you do this, you wear a lot of hats. And one of the things that's kind of difficult is like, how do you manage all of your finances? And I think we both do this next thing, which is to set up a business account. You don't necessarily have to have an LLC at this point or anything else. But if you have a specific account that's just for business related expenses, it's very easy to track. And for me, I have an LLC for Learn, Build, Teach, but I I have a, a separate account that's just in my personal name, but I only use it for learn, build, teach stuff. Anything that I do for personal, I transfer out of that account to our personal bank account. So that's something that I've really done an easy way to do that. You could go to your bank, whatever bank people use and do that in person. I actually opted to go for Ally, which is a strictly online bank. And it was really easy to set up and I was ready to go in a few minutes to do all of my business expenses through that one account. It makes a huge difference. When I originally started out, I mean, I was a teenager, so I was just putting everything in my personal account. And then as soon as I finally made the switch to a business account, it made all the difference when I was trying to do accounting and submit my taxes. And now the account I have set up is at a completely different bank just to keep things 100% separate. And you mentioned taxes. I don't know if if we track these exactly the same. Maybe we'll touch on both on ones we want to, but I personally use QuickBooks and I can't remember why I started. I think my wife through some like tax software that she had used got a free year for QuickBooks. And now I pay, I think it's a couple bucks a month or something. So I have it connected to that one account in Ally, that bank account for business expenses. So it tracks everything there. I enter all of my receipts and things into QuickBooks. And at the end of the year, I just did this with my accountant, but I do an export from QuickBooks. I have that, I send it to the accountant. And that's really from a business perspective, from an LLC perspective, all he needs and he's taking care of the rest. So do you actually use the software on your computer? No, well, it's in the browser. Okay. Okay. Because yeah. I was going to say, I use QuickBooks too, but I use their online version. So I just mm-hmm. had to create an account for my accountant when we were doing it that way. Part of the reason I use QuickBooks is because I was using their desktop software for the longest time for my personal finances. So using their business side of things just made sense at the time. But what's interesting is for the compressed.fm side of things, we're actually using FreshBooks. And that's all online as well. But the nice thing is James and I both have transparency into where, well, usually where it's, I'm spending money, (laughs) 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 but also we can send out invoices to our sponsors that way and have them pay us, which is always a good thing when you have money coming in, especially if you're spending. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And, and for everyone out there, Amy is spending money in the most responsible and necessary way. So it is a good thing. (laughs) And maybe, maybe we should get into like the financial side, what kind of expenses are we talking about when we do projects? And we had a question from uh, developer Cam on Twitter, a uh, question about, do I pay for hosting a slash a domain when freelancing or does the client? I think in general, you could approach that like you have it bundled in to your overall cost, or you could just say, these are the one-off things that you're going to have to pay for. Domain being like they might pay once a year, they might pay for five years up front. And then you get into the conversation about hosting. And this is a great chance for us to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Vercel, because you may not even need to have a conversation about the paying for hosting because Vercel is an amazing option for hosting your Jamstack, your static sites for free. You can start out on the free tier. You connect to a GitHub repository. It automatically builds your site and deploys it. You can use your custom domain on Vercel. It's one of the easiest hosting platforms that I have used myself. 
They also are the creators of the Next.js framework, which is Amy and I's favorite framework for building web applications. So the combination of Next.js and Vercel, you may not even need a conversation about money for hosting. You might be able to get along with the free tier. But thank you to Vercel for sponsoring and go and check them out. Links in the show notes below. Extra special thanks to Vercel. We do appreciate that. And as you go into a little bit more detail there, James, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but there are really two types of expenses as you're doing freelance work. There's the stuff that you need for everyday business. So this is things like software licenses for Figma or Adobe Creative Cloud. You have your own personal email. You have the stuff that it takes to make your personal site run. You have GitHub, different services like that, that I'm not going to charge a client for. That's just part of doing business. But then you also have the pieces that you do want your client to pay for. So if you have to purchase a specific font or specific stock photography for them, or if you're using WordPress plugins and licenses. And then I would actually bundle the hosting and domain name into that category is stuff that your client pays for. And I've done the hosting and the domain name two different ways. I've purchased it for a client. If they're not tech savvy at all, I've gone out and bought it for them. And then I've charged them once a year for that because you don't want to have to charge them every single month. That puts a lot of work on you. But I've charged them annually for their hosting. But I would just advise people, having done it two different ways, to put that in their own client's account. It just makes things a whole lot cleaner, especially if they ever want to transfer that out. And I've really come to appreciate the services that will allow you to set your client up on automatic billing so that you're not even having to hunt them down for that. It is pretty easy the first time when you complete a project to ask them to pay for hosting. But if you've gone a year and haven't done any work on the site, sometimes it's a good opportunity to say, hey, your hosting's up for renewal. Do you need any extra work? But a lot of times you're trying to hunt them down for that money when it doesn't feel like you've done work on the site and it becomes Mm -hmm. kind of a pain. Yeah. Feel a little uncomfortable, I think, reaching out at that point. Another... Yeah. Potential for that too. And I go back to the one actual freelance project I did from a website perspective, but the client wanted to pay for hosting for five years just to get it out of the way. And their thought was you get a little bit of a discount on it when you pay up front that way. So that's what we did. And that ended up, and that actually is coming to an end in November. And I haven't talked to them in three years. So I'm curious what they're going to want to do at that point. But at least it made it easy on me and them or we didn't have to worry about it. So if they have the money up front and they know they're going to be around for a few years, maybe they'll want to pay a few years in advance. Yeah, for sure. That situation is great just as long as somebody remembers that it's up for renewal. Because I've also been in those situations where it expires and then you're trying to scramble to figure out who do we go to talk to to get everything back up and running. So I think we're going to transition into the legal side. And we talked a little bit about separating your business expenses and stuff like that. We've actually, at the end of this, you're going to share a story from your experience of why some of the legal stuff becomes really important. So we'll get to that in a second. But in terms of how do you do business, uh, developer Cam asked another question on Twitter of, do I need an official business to freelance? So for me, in my content, YouTube videos and courses, that kind of stuff, I opted to go ahead and create the LLC, which costs about $300 a year to renew. And then there's some business taxes in there, which is not very much, but Basically, my thought process is that that prevents anyone from coming after any of my personal assets. So our house, our cars, things like that. So if someone were to sue me against my LLC, they're not going to get that much because I don't have a ton of money there. And that prevents them from coming after anything personal for me. So what kind of setup do you have from a legal perspective? I have an LLC as well. And for the exact same reason, I just wanted to point out if you're getting started, you don't have to start out with that LLC. Mm -hmm. But as you do more and more business, especially when I got to the point where I was ready to do it full time, 
was really where I formalized that LLC to make sure that protecting my personal assets. So there's a couple of different types. I'm not a great expert on this. I would definitely refer to a lawyer, but you can set up an LLC. You just still have to pay self-employment taxes, or you can set up an S-corp. So you may end up paying less taxes just in my Googling, but it's only if you pay yourself a reasonable salary. And I'm not exactly sure what that threshold is. But again, from the article that I read online, you have to set up an LLC or a C-corp first and then convert it to an escort. But of course, I would refer you to a lawyer. They'll be able to help you far more than I would. Yeah, I want to make sure we legally cover ourselves with the advice that we give here. But yeah, I think we both got to a point where we were making enough money that we felt like, or just having enough transactions that we felt like we needed a little bit of assurance, a little bit of protection in case something went wrong. And I, especially with this just being side income, have no anticipation of any reason for someone to sue me. But if it comes up, I have a little bit of of peace of mind there for having that LLC. It doesn't take a lot to set it up. It's pretty straightforward and gives you a little peace of mind. Did you do yours yourself or did you have a lawyer do it for you? I did it myself. And I just fumbled okay. around and answered whatever I could. Okay. I had a lawyer do mine just because I was like, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to delegate that piece. But they'll also be able to tell you, if you are working with a lawyer, what you need to file for on the county, state, and federal level. And I just say, yep, all three. Because I got to a point where I would say, go file for state taxes. And they would ask me a question about the county. And I was like, ooh, didn't know I need to have yeah. that filed. <laughs> so that would send me down the next rabbit hole of trying to make sure that that was taken care of. So I would just make sure that you ask about all three. And they're going to be different depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. Yep, Especially absolutely. if you're not in the United States, it'll be completely different than this. Yes. And just one last clarification, everyone, make sure if this is what you're looking into, go and do your own research to clarify and maybe talk to a lawyer as well. In addition to setting up maybe like your business side, in terms of your legal relationship with clients, I think you've had a lot of experience with creating contracts with clients. So the expectations are really clear. That holds you accountable, but also can hold them accountable if they, I don't know what the scenario is, but they want to bail out after committing to pay X amount of money. Is that something you usually do for your clients is create contracts for those relationships? That's right. So I've had a couple of different contracts that I've used throughout the years. There's a couple that I've taken online and modified. Dan Mall has a great one that he uses. And the reason I like it is it's normal, non-legal verbiage. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes if you want to go that route. But then I've also had a lawyer actually create a contract for me as well and use that one. And some of it, just to be quite honest and frank, probably not the best advice, but it really depends on who I'm working with and the size of the project. So for example, when James and I created this podcast, I wanted to have a contract, but not that you ever anticipate anything going wrong, but I just wrote up some expectations that I had and he included his expectations. And that just allows us to get everything out in the open at the beginning. So I did not go to a lawyer (laughs) with him and ask them to draw something up. But if it was a $10,000 project, I would probably have a lawyer write up a contract. And if you're new to this, usually you want to be the one to submit a contract, a legal document, because usually the person that's submitting it has it written in their favor. And so if you have a client write it, they might not always have everything that you would need. I've worked on one project in particular where the client submitted the contract. It was a sizable project. So I had my lawyer review it and there were tons of revisions. And so then you're having to pay for your lawyer to go back and revise everything. It would have just been much simpler if I had submitted my contract on the front 
front end instead of taking theirs for review. And I imagine like that stuff comes from experience. Like you've been through, like I, I look to you in these conversations because I haven't been through uh, the freelancing experience that you have. You've gone through many, many clients. You've gone through good and bad. You've been through lots of different situations. And I'm assuming you've learned a lot from that. And I think you've got a story, maybe you don't mind telling us, like what happens if you're in one of those situations and you don't have a contract, what can go wrong? I'm really curious to see where this one goes. Yeah. So there was a project that I was looking into. This was right out of college. So I was super young, very green. And the project went south before it even really started. We didn't have a contract. I hadn't really done a whole lot of work on the project. In my mind, it had been more of these initial conversations. And I just started seeing a lot of red flags and didn't want to work with this client long-term. And so I backed out. And at that point, they said they had had conversations with me in good faith that I would see this project through and that I wasn't delivering on what I said I was going to do. The project was still in the discovery negotiating phase. We really weren't that far along. We didn't have a contract. I hadn't done any work for them, hadn't invoiced them. didn't even plan on invoicing them. But since I said didn't want to work for them, they threatened to sue me. I mean, you can't force somebody to work with you, especially if you don't have a contract. And like I said, I wasn't asking for money. So the situation kind of resolved itself. But man, it was stressful at the time. This is the only time that this kind of thing has happened to me where I've had a client threaten to sue me. But as a result, I went out and got business insurance. And I know a lot of freelancers probably don't carry it, probably don't worry about it, but I've had business insurance really ever since that instance, so that if I do get sued, that I do have insurance that will help cover all those legal fees. I don't have to worry about it. And the nice thing is with business insurance, it covers a bunch of different stuff. It actually covers all of my gear so that if somebody broke into my house and stole everything, business insurance would help cover all those costs. I wouldn't have to be out of pocket for trying to buy a new computer and monitor and whatnot. So like I said, a lot of people might not have it or might not worry about it. But for me, it's had a lot of peace of mind over the years. And I think even without the business insurance, two things we've already touched on. One, talk to a lawyer as much as you can. Make sure you get a lawyer's advice for the things that you do. And then if you have the ability to generate contracts, just so you have those really clear expectations, I think it's really hard if you have a binding contract and you abide by the contract, it's hard to get sued. This is not legal advice. Mm -hmm. Again, make sure you go and talk to a lawyer. But those are two things, having conversations with lawyers up front, having contracts. And I imagine that's a fairly common thing for you at this point, just so you have those really clear expectations on what they're paying, what they're paying for, and then what you're going to commit to. That's right. And a big piece of that is just getting everything out in the open. It's not even necessarily about the legal document or the insurance for that matter, but it's just making sure that you've communicated all the expectations that you have and they know what those are. All right. So as we wrap up, we want to do one of our favorite sections here, our grab bag section, where we take questions from friends and strangers alike on the internet. I'll ask you the first one. How do you make yourself job ready when you're constantly preoccupied with an existing work schedule? And this question comes via Twitter from The Black Sky. This is a great question. And it's really something I'm pretty passionate about. I, I think First and foremost, depending on the a job you're in and the industry you're in and the company you work for, there may be opportunities for you to do some of those trainings on the job. So one of the things, and this is fortunate for me in my experience in the companies I've worked for. So if this does not apply to you, I understand. But I advocated for myself at FedEx that I wanted to have an hour or two a week to do some of these training programs. And I advocated or I asked, I didn't even advocate that much. I just asked for a little bit of budget occasionally to spend on Udemy courses. And I would say, here are the three or four different courses I'd like to take. They're $10 a piece. Here's why they would be relevant for what we're doing here and got approved. 
I don't know, over the course of a couple of years, got a few hundred dollars for that sort of stuff. So I think you have the ability to advocate for yourself that as developers, we should always be learning. So you may have the opportunity to do that with your job in terms of money and or resources. And then outside of your job, I think it's a really hard thing to do because I want to be respectful of some of us only have so much free time and then some of us have so many things going on. Even in our free time, we want to just sit down and relax. But I think you do have the opportunity with as many online resources as, as there are. We both have YouTube channels. We create courses, other content creators. There's so many resources out there that I think you can maybe choose what skills are going to help you the most. I think narrowing it down to, all right, I want to get this type of job. I need these type of skills. Go out and find those resources and then work on them in your spare time. Again, you may not have that much spare time depending on what you have going on, but you can be really choosy about when you have spare time. What do you spend it on? Yeah. And I'd also just throw out there to learn in public. There's a really popular Twitter hashtag called 100 Days of Code, where you just focus on doing one small code related thing every single day and you tweet about that. And regardless of how many people see that, that creates an accountability for you. And it makes it feel like you're learning as part of a community, even if you are at home by yourself learning new concepts. Yeah. And and to that point, something we've talked about a lot, being being a part of communities. It could be Twitter community, it could be Discord, it could be Slack, it could be your local meetups, virtual meetups. Like when you're around people who are doing good things, you get so inspired and you want to learn and you want to do some of the things that they're doing. So I think that's a great way to keep yourself inspired and motivated as well as just by being around people who are doing that sort of stuff. I feel like you're being a little humble, James. If you are (laughs) looking for a community, check out Learn, Build, Teach. You can just go to learnbuildteach.com and join James's Discord server. And there's some great people in there that will help keep you accountable. Or as you run into questions as you're learning by yourself, they'll help you get on the right track. Yeah, that's been a that's been a really fun one and a really special one for me. Very, very helpful community. Everything that you just said, I, I wholeheartedly agree with. So yes, we'll uh, we'll not be so humble and, and share that uh, more explicitly. <laughs> there is a question from Zach Wilson. I talk about communities that I'm in. I'm teaching a boot camp called Launch Code. Zach is one of my awesome students. And he asked about maintenance on applications that you make. Do you hand them off to someone else or do you maybe have a grace period where you maintain it as a part of your project or contract? Or maybe there's like a third option of do you have like an ongoing retainer fee for doing some sort of updates or maintenance or things like that? What kind of options have you looked at in the past, Amy? Yeah, Zach, this is a great question. So usually what I'll do is I'll have a 30 day guarantee. So anything that I build, you have 30 days to come back in and make changes, whatnot. A lot of times you don't realize that something's not working exactly the way that you want until you release it out into the wild. So that gives them an opportunity to come back and make those requests. You know, a huge part is you're selling a project is giving that peace of mind. And I have X amount of days to ask for a correction. But after that, it's a great opportunity for you to offer a maintenance plan or a maintenance contract. So if you're working with WordPress, some of that involves I'm updating your plugins. I'm making sure that everything's running smoothly with security or hosting or whatnot. So that's a great option there. You can also build in hours to say, hey, I'll give you five hours a month to make any changes on your site. So that's another option. And then how you choose to set that up, whether that time rolls over into the next month or maybe it doesn't, that's up to you. But a huge part of that is just communicating that with a client so they know upfront what they can expect. And I imagine some of that changes based on what you're looking for. Like you might be looking for, I want to be done with this thing in a month and I don't want to have anything else to do with it. Or 
if you're looking for a couple of different people to be on retainer to build up that recurring revenue, that might be that might be the way that works best for you. That's right. So the third question, and this comes from Roger, why do coding interviews suck? <laughs> By the way, shout out to Roger, who's in the Discord as well, and just at a Twitter spaces where we got to talk about a lot of different things, I think, including this topic. Coding interviews, the idea that coding interviews suck, I think comes from the whiteboarding interviews. This is a pretty hot topic in tech of what's the actual value of the whiteboarding interview. And I think you can kind of think of it, it's almost like the ACT or the SAT, which are standardized tests here in the United States. You can study really, really hard and do well because you've studied those problems. You could also be really, really, really smart, not study for the ACT and not do that well. So those things, including whiteboard interviews, they're not necessarily, to me, the best reflection of your abilities as a developer. I think there's some companies like the Fang companies, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, those types of companies where these interviews are really common and they make a little bit more sense. I would argue that most companies don't need to have those types of interviews. I think learning about people as people and their background and their experiences and how they fit into a company, as well as hearing them talk about projects that they've worked on and technologies they've used. I can also speak to Zeal and where we are right now, because we're obviously in a huge hiring push. And so I've sat in on meetings where we talk about what's the best way to hire somebody. And a big thing for us is culture and making sure that you're a good culture fit. And a lot of times you might know Python really well and you might not be a Rails developer. And so we've had conversations of, do we still hire the Python developer? Just because you understand the coding concepts already and you're a good culture fit, it's going to be easy for you to shift over to Rails. So the way that we at least have structured our coding interviews is that a lot of times you're pairing with another team member and you're working on a problem together. So that might be scary for some people that you're pairing with another senior developer, but it's not the way that we intend for it to be. We're really just trying to see how do you think if you don't know something, how do you respond? How do you interact with another developer? Those things are far more important than whether you can solve a coding problem on a whiteboard. Yeah, they have their place. And the idea of algorithms and data structures and optimal solutions to things are really valuable. But you're never going to be in a spot in the real world where you don't have the ability to Google what's the best way or fastest way to do this. Sometimes you need to be innovative. Most of the time, as most developers will tell you, we Google things and look it up and then we go and implement it. And that's how it usually works. So why do coding interviews suck? Some of them do. Some of them don't. Some of it is just a game that you have to play to get the job. And that's kind of the sad reality sometimes of coding interviews aren't perfect. And I think it's evolving. And I think some of the feedback is being heard. But as it's evolving, if you want to get that job, you might have to play the game and you might have to practice doing those whiteboarding interviews because that's what it's going to be. So we'll see how that progresses over the next couple of years. So those were a few of our grab bag questions. As we wrap up, we like to do our section called picks and plugs, where we pick something that we like or want to share, and then we plug something of our own. Amy, do you want to go first? Yeah. So I've been reading this book called Shoe Dog. It's written by Phil Knight, and he's the guy behind Nike. So I love to run and business and startups and things like that. And so it kind of combines all those things for me. So it's really interesting as he talks about the process of trying to start up a company, what that looked like. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but for him, he was selling shoes out of the trunk of his car or out of his apartment and really just trying to bootstrap it and make things work. So I really enjoyed that book a whole lot. Then for my plug, I want to plug my YouTube channel. So that's Self Teach Me. And right now we're going through a series on coding out an audio player. So I created a bunch of different audio players for the compressed.fm site and learned a bunch of things in the process. So I'm sharing all of that on YouTube. So be sure to check it out. Yeah. I just want to call out you had the perfect 
pun when you were talking about shoe dog and then you went with bootstrap and i was just waiting for like (laughs) pun intended it was there (laughs) i didn't even catch it (laughs) (laughs) so for my for my pick i'm gonna go with the sandisk portable ssd so i've got the two terabyte version and it's an ssd which means that i can record to and edit all of my video from this and it's ruggedized with a little clip so i can clip this onto my backpack we're not really traveling much now but in theory when we travel i can clip it on or i can put it in my backpack i don't have to worry about it getting damaged or anything i can just kind of drop it in there it's USB-C, so i can plug it right into my mac And this is where I've been storing all of my videos and editing the videos from for the last several months. So Costco has had the terabyte version for a while. And then I got the two terabyte version off of Amazon and it's been absolutely fantastic. So it saves a lot of space on my computer because of how many videos and things that I do. So storing it on there, being able to carry it anywhere and it being ruggedized is really, really sweet. It'd also be great for a time machine while you're traveling. Mm -hmm. Not a literal time machine, but if you're on a Mac and doing backups and things like that, having a time machine to be able to get those backups on the road. Oh, see, Amy almost released that we literally have a time machine in the works, but then she backed (laughs) off to clarify. (laughs) Trying to help out our Windows people. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Yeah. We want to make sure that we keep that in mind as well. So I will plug my YouTube channel, James Hewquick on YouTube, as well as we mentioned this earlier, but the Learn, Build, Teach Discord, a great community for you to learn, build, and teach, to ask questions from people that are there, to share things that you've worked on, and just be part of the community. It's a lot of fun. So we'll have links to both of those as well. And the very last thing, we finished up today, part two, freelancing in the next couple of episodes We're going to talk about the tech behind our own personal websites, which I think will be a lot of fun. We've got some things that are in common. We've got some things that are different. And in addition to that, we're going to talk about if we were to redo our websites, what would we do differently next time? So I think that one will be a lot of fun. Amy, this one has been fun as well. And for now, that's all we got.